Well, amen. Friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time before we look to the Bible. We need his help in this time, and he's faithful to give it. So let's ask him for that now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in need of what only you can do for us. We come this morning in need of what only Jesus can provide. And so our prayer is simple, that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and that you would show us yourself within your word, that you would show us ourselves and that you would show us our Savior. And we pray for that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, regardless of who you are or what your experiences have been, even your experiences in the church, it doesn't matter how many years you have been a Christian. It doesn't matter how healthy of a church background you may have. There is something that is true for all of us in terms of what we most need to have happen in this moment, in this time when we come to God's word. And that quite simply is that we need to behold and consider the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's a temptation for us sometimes to think that the gospel and the message about Christ is something that kind of mattered for me back there. Like it mattered for me in terms of my conversion. I heard the gospel. I heard the message about Jesus. I trusted in Christ. That happened back there. And now let's move forward and talk about other stuff. Let's talk about the Christian life. Let's talk about how I should be living and things that I should be doing. Not that those things are bad. Those things are good. We should talk about how we live under the word of God. We should talk about how we live as we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality is, at the end of the day, we all need Jesus Christ as much today as the first day we trusted him. We, on our best or worst day, are always in absolute need of what only Jesus can provide for us. So the gospel is not something, the message of Christ is not something that we hear once or maybe a few times, believe it and move on. The gospel is what we live in. We live under the wonderful truths about Christ crucified for sinners. We live in the wonderful message of the fact that everything that God required in his law he provided for us in his gospel through Christ. That matters today. It will matter tomorrow. It will matter on Tuesday. The title of the sermon series that we find ourselves in right now in the gospel of Mark is Who is Jesus? Again, I think the temptation for many of us who have spent some years in the church is to say, well, bro, I've considered that. I've considered Christ. I've thought about who he is. And just like we thought about with respect to the gospel, the question, who is Jesus, is something that we consider every single day that we're breathing. And here's the reality. It is in considering Christ and wrestling with who is he? What has he done? What is he doing? It's in considering him and beholding him that we are transformed, that faith is sustained. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's certainly true at conversion, and it's also true in an ongoing way. Faith is sustained through the word of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words, as we behold Christ, we are conformed to the image of Christ by the Spirit of Christ. It's pretty awesome stuff. We're changed as we consider and behold Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, open them up to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be looking today at a large section of verses, beginning in Mark chapter 4 and verse 35 all the way through the end of chapter 5. So we're going to be reading a decent amount of scripture this morning and considering it together. 
If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, don't sweat it. We'll get the verses from the passage up here on the screen, and you'll be able to follow along with us that way. So before we go any further, I'm going to read God's word for us, beginning in Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them, with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been, excuse me, who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So just a brief comment about this large passage that we're considering today. This might be clear to you already, even as we read through it. Our text breaks down into three parts, three big sections. Each one of these sections that we're going to consider demonstrates Jesus's authority. Each one demonstrates Christ's authority in such a way that we're forced to ask the question, who is this man? Who then is this? It's clear that Mark wants us to see that Jesus is the Christ, that he is God's son, and that he is the king. And so we're going to begin our time together by considering the first of the three parts. We'll call this part one. We'll give it the heading, Jesus Calms the Storm. Jesus Calms the Storm. We'll be looking at chapter four, verses 35 through 41 for just a few moments. So in this first piece where Jesus is going to calm the storm, we see very poignantly Jesus' authority over creation. He has complete authority over the created world. This is no small matter. Put your eyes on verse 35. We see there that it is Christ's idea that they would cross over the Sea of Galilee. Just keep that in mind. I mean, Jesus knows what's going to happen. It's not a mystery to him. So it's certainly true to say that sometimes the Lord leads us into storms. It's going to happen here for his disciples. As we move on, we see that they get in the boat in verse 36. They head out across the Sea of Galilee. And then in verse 37, the great windstorm arises. This would have been normal on this particular lake, just given the topography of the area. Windstorms could whip up pretty quickly. The sea, the waves could become very rough in an instant, relatively speaking. The boat is filling with water. We see that at the end of verse 37. So it's not good. Just, I'm not a sailor necessarily, but I know that's bad. And I trust you know that's bad too. So then in verse 38, we get this observation that Jesus was in the stern of the boat. He's in the rear of the boat and he's asleep on a cushion. That's a pretty cool observation. It just is another one of these little things here in the gospel account that reminds us that he is truly a man. He's sleeping. God, God does not sleep. Christ in his divine nature and doesn't sleep, but Christ is a man. He's a man and he's sleeping in the back of the boat. So they go and they wake him up. It's like, teacher, don't you care? We're dying, man. Don't you care? And he wakes up in verse 39 and he speaks. He speaks. He speaks to the wind and he speaks to the sea. Now, if you were to do that or if I were to do that, people would look at you and be like, bro, you have lost your mind. Talking to the wind, to the sea, like you can do anything about it. But Jesus speaks to the wind and to the sea and it obeys him. I mean, talk about a freak out moment. Like, for real. This is how the disciples respond. The calm hits. Verse 40, he looks at them and he asks them why they're so afraid. He is concerned that they are not at least at this point, trusting in him. It's like, don't you have faith? But they're freaking out. I mean, verse 41, they were filled with great fear. 
And they said to one another, who then is this? I think that's a pretty reasonable reaction. Can't imagine being in a boat in that kind of a situation and somebody just telling the wind and the waves to be still and it happens. Who is this man? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is he? Psalm 107 gives us a good answer to this question. I think Bruce is going to put these verses up on the screen. You don't need to turn there. You can just listen to God's word. Psalm 107, 23 to 29. Just listen to this. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord for his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, right? The swells are so high. They went down to the depths, right? The trough of the waves. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. The boats was being tossed everywhere. Then they cried to the Lord, Yahweh, in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who is this man? He's a man. Like I heard earlier, he's a guy. He's not just a guy. He's the Lord. He's the God of the universe. Jesus, we're seeing in just a few verses, the span of verse 38 to verse 41. He's a human being who's asleep in the back of the boat. And then he does what only Yahweh, the Lord, can do. We're going to go ahead and move into our next section, part number two. We'll give this the heading, Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man. Jesus heals a demon-oppressed man. Man, We're going to be looking right now at the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5. Again, wrestling with this question. Who is this guy? So we see in this section of Mark's gospel, we just looked at Christ's authority over creation. We're now going to look at his authority over demons, over Satan and all the demons and over the principalities of darkness. He reigns over that as well. So we see in verse 1 that they came to the other side of the sea. So they've gone across the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gerasenes. So this is also, if you put your eyes down on verse 20, you see the word Decapolis down there. So the area of the Gerasenes is the area of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was an association, a political association of 10 Greek city-states on the kind of east side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so that's where he is. He is now left... Jewish country, and he is in Gentile country. He is in Gentile territory. We know that just geographically, and also because of this statement about the Decapolis. We also know that because people in this area of the world are raising pigs, which Jews would not have been doing. So he is in a different context now. We see a, a man enter the scene here in verse 2. As soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, on the other side of the lake, immediately there comes to meet him a man out of the tombs and we're told that he has an unclean spirit. We're also told in verses 15 and 16, this word is used, he is a demonized man. A demonized man, oppressed by demons. We see in verses 2 through 4 that he was not in control of himself. So you see he lived among the tombs, verse 3. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He couldn't control himself, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself. So people can't restrain him. Chains, shackles, they're useless. He is in bondage to demons, and he's hurting himself, out of control, in bondage, destroying himself. Just a brief thought, friends. It's a pretty accurate description of all of us in our natural state. Now, are all of us in this same way oppressed by a demon like this man? Okay, maybe not, in our natural state. But we are just as much in bondage as he. 
And so we're going to now see this miraculous deliverance that Jesus works for him. Christ is going to set him free from this bondage that he finds himself in. We put our eyes now on verse 6. When this man, this demonized man, sees Jesus, he runs over to him, falls down, cries out with a loud voice. Again, be mindful, the demons oppressing this man are crying out essentially through the guy, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? There we go, that's identity. Who is he, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He knows who Jesus is. It's obvious, like if you read like verses 7 through 13, and this whole interchange that takes place, Jesus is saying, come out of the man to the unclean spirits. Jesus asks him, what's your name? He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Many demons, in other words, oppressing this human being. And he, the demonized man, begs earnestly not to be sent out of the country the demons do. And then we see this herd of pigs there, and they beg and say, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. He gives them permission in verse 13. Like all of this language, it is absolutely obvious that the demons know who's in control. Like they're begging, they're pleading, they're negotiating, like please be kind to us, do this, not that. They understand who he is and the power that he wields. In verse 13, we see that the unclean spirits come out of the pig, out of the man, excuse me, and enter this herd of pigs, and the herd runs down a steep bank into the sea and is drowned. It's a pretty poignant picture of Jesus and his kingdom triumphing over the kingdom of darkness. How so? We see that Jesus casts unclean spirits into unclean animals who are then plunged into the abyss. That's pretty epic. Some people read this passage. This is a brief aside. This isn't that important, but I figured I'd say it anyway. Sometimes people read this and they're like, oh my gosh, those 2,000 pigs died. It's like, well, that's true. Especially in Asheville. I mean, my goodness, it's like, in Asheville, the pigs are more important than the guy. But it's worth noting, seriously, it's worth noting that this one man is more valuable, clearly, than 2,000 pigs. Seriously. That matters. But it goes deeper than that. I mean, like, for this man to be set free, like, from bondage to Satan and sin, it's going to take a lot more than 2,000 pigs. It's going to take the death of the Son of God in order to set him free. Talk about value, right? I mean, not saying that to, to boast about us, like, oh, we're so awesome, we're so valuable, but no, like, this is the love of God for his people, that the Son of God would lay his life down. It wasn't taken from him, he would lay it down. Such is the love of God for us. Back to the text here. Verse 14, the herdsmen who had been herding the pigs and see all this happen, they run and start telling people about it, and people come to see. It's a spectacle. They come to Jesus, verse 15, and they see the demon-possessed man, the demonized man, the one who had had the legion. He's sitting there, he's clothed in his right mind, and people are afraid because they know. They know what this dude was like, and they think whatever did this is like, scary powerful. Descriptions of the events, verse 16, go on. And then the people of that region, verse 17, begin to ask Jesus, like, just leave us, man. Like, get away from here. Like, we can't handle you here. So Jesus departs. We see in verse 18 that as he's getting into the boat, the formerly demonized man begs Jesus, let me be with you. Let me be with you. That's a sweet little detail there. Such is the desire of all the redeemed. Right? That's one, one thought. Like, in thinking about whether, whether I'm a believer or not, the redeemed want to be with Jesus. 
Jesus prays for us in John 17, 24. He prays that all of his people would be with him where he is to see the glory that the Father gave him before the foundation of the world. This man who was oppressed by demons has now been delivered. And he's like, I want to be with my deliverer. That's legit. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus doesn't permit him to do that then. Now forever is a different thing. I trust we, we will see this man around the throne of God forever. That's an awesome thought. But right now, Christ says, no, you, you need to stay here. You need to go home to your friends and tell them. You need to tell them about how much the Lord has done for you. You need to tell everybody about the mercy that the Lord has shown you. And we read in verse 20 that he goes away and he begins to proclaim in the Decapolis, this Gentile area, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled at it. So we've thought about through Mark's gospel how in Jewish contexts, with the exception of maybe one episode, Jesus always tells people, keep my identity a secret. Don't tell everybody who I am. Don't make a big deal about what I'm doing. We've thought about that's because of the fact that he has a mission to accomplish, namely to suffer and die for his people, and he doesn't want that mission compromised. But in this Gentile context, where they don't even have a category for the Messiah, they're not thinking in those terms. He's like, you want to be with me? Not now. You need to go and you need to tell your friends and your family and everybody about what the Lord has done for you. So here we see in this former demoniac, in one sense, the first missionary to the Gentiles. It's a cool story of transformation and conversion. And we see a precursor of the gospel going to the nations. This would happen at a much larger scope after the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The gospel would go to the ends of the earth. A pretty cool just note for us, in Mark chapter 7, we're going to find ourselves back in the Decapolis in the same region again. And when Jesus is back there, at that point, people bring a deaf man to Jesus, a man who can't hear and can barely speak. And they say, Jesus, heal him. Believing like that he could. So that's not nothing. We don't know how that happened. We're not told. But clearly, the word about Jesus began to spread enough in this Gentile region that they would bring a deaf person to Christ later for healing. It's pretty cool. So we don't know if it was the man formerly known as Legion who told them, but somehow they heard. We're going to move now to part number three. We've considered already Christ's calming of the storm and then also his healing of a demon-possessed man. Part three, we're going to consider how Jesus heals a sick woman and Jairus' daughter. Jesus heals a sick woman and Jairus' daughter. We're going to be looking now at verses 21 through 43 of Mark chapter 5. So we've already seen Christ's authority over creation. We have seen his authority over demons. And now we are about to see his authority over sickness and even death. It's quite a resume. Put your eyes on verse 22. Jesus crossed over again. He's back into Jewish territory in verse 21. A great crowd is gathered. Verse 22, we see that a ruler of the synagogue, think about him almost like a synagogue administrator. That would have been his role. He comes, his name is Jairus, we're told. He sees Jesus, he too falls at his feet and implores him earnestly. He says, essentially, my little girl is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she'll be made well, and so that she'll live. We see the posture of Jairus there, humble, imploring Christ. There is some measure of belief, at least, that Jesus can heal his daughter. We see that. Christ responds with compassion. He goes with the man. Verse 24, you see that. So a great crowd, I mean, as you can imagine, there's already a crowd gathered, and this man is like, my daughter is dying. Jesus, come heal her. People are like, hey, let's see how this goes. So the great crowd follows, we see in the end of verse 24. They throng about Jesus. So it's just a mass of people you know, around him as they're making their way towards Jairus' house. 
In verse 25, a woman enters the scene. We read about her. The text tells us that she had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Can't imagine it. That's a long time. She had suffered, verse 26, under many physicians, had spent all that she had, and was no better. That's tough. A lot of difficult things. Hopeful that things will work. Spending all of her resources to no avail. Her condition, though, in terms of maybe societally or in her context, like her condition as an outcast, as an unclean person, would have been, I trust, just as painful as the physical part. Because be mindful of the fact that in this Jewish context, her perpetual bleeding for 12 years made her unclean. Perpetually unclean. Always outside the camp. She's ostracized. She's suffering. In verse 27, we read that she had heard some of the reports about Jesus. She comes up behind him in the crowd and she touches his garment. In verse 28, we're told what she's thinking. She said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So we're going to talk more about her in just a moment. She has some measure of faith sort of interwoven with superstition. We're going to think about that more. She's got, she understands enough and believes enough. She's like, if I can just get to Christ and touch him, I'm going to be made well. We see in verse 29 that immediately she's healed. Like it's not a process, it just happens right there. The flow of blood dries up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. All right, now verse 30. Jesus perceives this. He, he perceives that power has left him. He turns around and he asks, who touched my garments? It's kind of a humorous interchange between him and his disciples right here. They're like, uh, Jesus, you see all these people, right? Like, what kind of question is that? There's people all over the place touching you, like, all over the place. Bro, what do you mean who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Verse 32. But then the woman comes, knowing what had happened to her. She came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him everything. So, Jesus is man and Jesus is God. Jesus knows what's in man. He doesn't need to be told what's in man because he knows. My, at least, understanding of this passage, you have the text in front of you. I don't think Jesus is asking this question because he doesn't know what's happening. He's asking this question because he means to have an interchange with this woman. He's asking the question on purpose. Because everything Jesus does is purposeful. She comes to him in fear. You see that, verse 33. She's afraid. She thinks this isn't going to go well for me. Like I'm in trouble somehow. And then she comes in fear, and Jesus meets her with daughter. Afraid, like, I don't know if I've done something wrong, and then she's met with this greeting this term of endearment, this term of adoption, daughter. Jesus tells the woman, verse 34, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is very much like what Jesus says in Luke chapter 7 and verse 50 when he encounters another woman, a woman of the city who was a sinner who came into the house of a Pharisee named Simon while Jesus was there. Many will be familiar maybe with that story where this woman washes Christ's feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And the Pharisees and the crowd there, they're like, this is inappropriate, Jesus. And he, of course, says what she's doing is going to be commended. And he looks at her and tells her this exact same thing. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So think about this woman and what happened in her life that day. She came to this throng of people, 
bleeding, having been bleeding for 12 years, an outcast. If I can only touch Jesus, I think I'm going to be made well. She touches him and she's healed, and then he forces this interchange and she's terrified. She came with faith that was mixed with superstition. And she would leave knowing that it is faith in Jesus, not the touching of his clothes, but it is faith in Jesus that has saved her and has made her a daughter of the Most High God. She came to Jesus for physical healing, but what she received was grace and adoption and peace forever. Now, while all of this is going on, like that's a pretty poignant episode there in and of itself. Don't forget about the fact that Jairus' daughter is dying. Jairus is still there. I mean, that was the point of the whole thing is we're going to heal this little girl. So we see in verse 35 that while all of this is going on, people from Jairus' household show up and they report bad news. Verse 35, you see it. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. It's, it's over now. Let's not trouble the teacher anymore. Now, Jesus is not surprised by any of this. He knew what he was doing. Even in stopping to talk with the woman, we don't know how long that took, but he knew what he was doing. Think John chapter 11. Lazarus is sick. Christ hears about it. And what does he do? He waits two more days before he leaves to go. He, in that sense, decides and allows for Lazarus to die because he knows what he's going to go do. So it's very similar. But Jairus doesn't know that, right? I mean, this man whose little girl is dying is standing there in the midst of this, like, melee. I can't imagine what's going through his mind. Can you? Like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, I'm glad that you're healing this woman. That's great, fantastic. We gotta get moving, man. Like, my daughter is dying. Jesus has not forgotten about Jairus or his daughter. Jesus has a plan to teach Jairus and his family quite a bit on this day. It's a good reminder for us, friends, that God, through his Son, by his Spirit, is always purposeful in our lives. We have many scenarios that mirror this. Where we're like, what is going on, Lord? I don't understand. Like, why are you wasting your time? Why are you dawdling? Why are you dragging your feet? Like, answer me. Deliver me now. It's good to remember that God does not waste our sorrows. He is purposeful in all that he does. And he completes his good work in us. Just like he's going to do for this man and this family in this account. So he looks in verse 36. He overhears what's being said. But he knows what's going on. He looks at the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, and he says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Only believe. Don't fear what? Don't fear death that has just taken your daughter. Don't be afraid of that. Only believe. In what? In who? He's saying, in me. Okay, so now we're going. Jesus grabs Peter, James, and John, the kind of three within the twelve, and they make their way. Verse 38, they arrive at the house and Jesus sees a great commotion. People are weeping and wailing. They're mourning because this little girl has died. He enters and he has the audacity to say, why are you making such a commotion? Why are you weeping like this? The child is not dead. She's just sleeping. Verse 40. And they laughed at him. What a tragic statement that is. They think they know better. Verse 40, but he puts all of them out. Side, he takes Jairus, the child's father, his wife, the child's mother, and then Peter, James, and John. He takes those people into the room with the little girl. This is not about spectacle. This is not about a show. This is about a particular purpose for these people that Jesus means to accomplish. He is concerned for the little girl, for her parents, for their faith, and he's concerned for Peter, James, and John. In verses 41 and 2, we see the interchange with the little girl. He takes her by the hand. He tells her to rise, and she does. So, brief observation, dead people obey Jesus. 
Verse 43, we see that he strictly charges them. Again, we're back in the Jewish context. He says, nobody should know about this. It's like, okay, yeah, right, bro. She was dead and now she's alive. Like, I don't know if we can keep the lid on this, but he tells them then, don't tell anybody, give her something to eat. Just to be crystal clear, like she's fine. She's eating now. She's resuming normal life now. So friends, as we draw our time to a close, I want us to think a little bit more about what Jesus did in that room with that little girl. One observation that we could make is that he touched a dead person. So this, again, in his context, in Christ's Jewish context, to touch a dead body made you unclean. So just like we considered in chapter 1 when Jesus touched a leprous man, and even the interchange with the bleeding woman, the unclean woman coming into contact with him, contact with him, What's remarkable about these contexts and these stories that were told about the life of Jesus and his ministry is that when he comes into contact with unclean things, unclean people, he does not become unclean. They become clean. Their corruption does not affect him at all. His life, his righteousness, his power, his salvation comes to them. Another observation that we could make, I kind of already said this a minute ago, is that dead people obey Jesus. This is a very poignant picture, along with Lazarus' resurrection. These are powerful like word pictures in terms of how we all came to trust in Christ. The Bible tells us that our spiritual condition naturally is really bad, as in like, dead. You don't get deader than dead. We're told that our hearts were stone. You don't get harder than stone. We're told that we're in bondage, just like the demoniac that we thought about, in bondage to sin, to Satan, to our passions. We're unwilling and unable by ourselves to do anything about our condition. And so, when the call of the gospel goes out, Christ crucified for sinners. He paid our debt. He accomplished our righteousness. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered hell. And by faith, we are justified. We're counted righteous and we'll be with God forever. That's the gospel proclaimed. It's heralded. Apart from any work, by faith. When that call goes out, it's just like in these scenarios. The one who gives the command has to give the life in order to believe it. So like with this little girl, when he says, Talitha kumi, little girl, arise. The one who gave the command gave her the life to do it. It's just like Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus is dead, man. The one who gave the command gives the life so that we might respond, that we might obey, to which we say, praise God, that by his spirit, he gave me eyes to see. He gave me life so that I might trust in Christ. And friends, the last substantial observation that we would want to make about what happened in this room with this little girl is that it is a very powerful picture of what will happen at the end of history when Christ comes back for his people. So all of the saints who have already died and all of us in this room who will die unless Christ returns before we do, will be in the ground. We will be dead. And Christ will return. And we will be, like Ezekiel 37, right? we'll be resurrected. We will come from, again, from death to life. Our bodies will be united with our spirit and we will dwell with God forever in a new heavens and a new earth in an existence that's just as physical as this one. 
We will be, just like the demoniac wanted to be with Jesus, in the new heavens and the new earth, we always will be with him. We will see him as he is. We will be with each other. As this great brotherhood and sisterhood, this family of God, we will live with God, with Christ, with each other in a world of no sin. There's no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no death. Nobody's leaving anybody anymore. All of that peace and that joy and that glory will never end, ever. The power of God will do this, just like it did with this little girl. And so when you hear, when you hear about the new heavens and the new earth, and you hear about this ending of the story, but the end is kind of just a new beginning to the story that will last forever and ever. When you hear that, does it not tug at your heart? I don't know if you're like me. Like if you're watching a movie or like a show that you like or something, and everything is resolving beautifully, like just like you wanted it to. You're like, all right, you know, the guy and the girl get together and everybody's happy and like evil has been conquered Good has triumphed, and like it's this beautiful scene, and the sun is setting, and it's happily ever after. If you're like me, you kind of have a mixed sort of bag of feelings going on. You're, you're happy that it's ended that way, but then there's this aching in your heart, this longing in your heart. On the one hand, it's like I want to I want to watch the story continue, on the one hand. But then also, there's this longing within me, within us, I trust, that, oh my gosh, like that happily ever after thing, it absolutely gets at something in the core of me that I can't even articulate. Of course, this tugs at our hearts. With God, with Christ, with each other forever in a perfect existence. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon writes, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. He's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Eternity has been written into your heart and mine. In one sense, it's appropriate to say that we were made for the new heavens and the new earth. There's a reason you long. It's because it's what you were made for. This life, as good as it can be sometimes, is not what we were ultimately made for. And the awesome thing is we've considered Jesus today. We've considered his authority over creation and demons and sickness and death. We've thought about the fact that he is the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, who came to accomplish redemption. He, in his power and in his mercy, has secured the new heavens and the new earth for us. He took our sin, he paid our debt, he lived the perfect life that we need but could never live. He conquered death and hell and sin for us. All of this to be received by faith. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. This faith piece is important. We've seen it with the disciples in the boat. Jesus asked them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith in me? We've seen it with the woman, daughter, your faith in me has made you well, go in peace. We've seen it with Jairus, don't fear, only believe in me. This is how Jesus, we've thought about how Christ interacts differently with different people in the Gospels. When he encounters people who think they can achieve righteousness on their own, when he encounters people who already think that they are righteous, he often speaks to them in terms of the law. But in contexts where he encounters people who have a different posture, when he encounters people who are his, he talks to them about faith in him. He talks to them about peace in him. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. His last night on earth, he said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. 
believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Again, on the last night that he would spend on earth, he says to his disciples, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's words like that that lead people to write really good songs, like Hallelujah, All I Have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Because in Christ, we have redemption, we have resurrection, He is our sanctification, He is our peace, He is our rest. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you. We thank you for your love for us that you have shown us most powerfully through your Son. We praise you and thank you for your great plan of redemption that you formulated before the world began. Lord Jesus, we thank you personally for coming to accomplish our salvation, for coming in authority, in complete authority, yet willing to lay your life down for sinners like us. We pray, Lord God, that by your Spirit now you would continue to minister to us. We are in need of you as we come to the Lord's table to participate by faith in the body and blood of Christ. We pray that you would come and that you would sustain our faith and strengthen our faith and encourage our faith in Christ. We pray that you would continue to conform us into the image of Christ, which you have promised to do. Use these means of your word and of the Lord's table to do that, we pray. We believe in you and we believe that you are faithful to continue to complete your good work in us. And so we pray hopefully and joyfully in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.